Today, we continue the conversation with child psychiatrist who specializes and is dedicated to helping parents support their kids in a way that is informed by the latest developments in neuroscience. Ashley Miller, MD, has been heavily focused on family therapy over the past 15 years and is a frequent keynote speaker and co-author to her new book, What to Say When Nothing Seems to Work. Well, that's a pretty good title for parents, isn't it? So her down-to-earth and practical approach is paralleled with scientific backing. Living in Vancouver, British Columbia since 2001, she hones her approach from her now 11 and 15-year-old kids. Now, I can't go any further in describing this incredible woman without sharing that Ashley Miller, MD, that's why I said it like that, is actually my longest standing friend. Oh, she, we both grew up on the West Island of Montreal in Canada. We went to primary school together. We went to high school together. We even went to college together. We even started volleyball together. So, holy dooly, we have been in each other's lives for a very long time. We had a secret. I'm just going to see. I mean, I'm looking at her face to see if she reacts to this. We had a secret kid pact that we would start a law firm named M&M. How dare that Canadian company stole our name, just saying, that freezer-dried food company took our M&Ms and the candy, of course. But somehow, here we are, the interviewer, the interviewee, getting to uplift one another in our gifts to help people lead fulfilling lives. And, you know, Ashley, we didn't get M&M, but somehow you're over there and I'm over here, and I think we're doing a pretty good job. So how are you going today? I'm doing really well, Sarah. And the truth is, though, even when we were seven years old, when we first met, we started having conversations that most seven-year-olds do not have and figuring out how to, you know, make life better for people. So I'm kind of surprised and not surprised that we're having this conversation right now. I'm so glad you said that because I think some people call it old souls, but we were definitely not your typical kids. Um, I guess you're right. We could have foreshadowed some of what we're now doing. Um, I wasn't planning on saying this part, but I'm just going to say it because I tell people in Australia about you all the time. And I say, Ashley was the girl at, in high school where we used to say when it was academic award night, we just put a chair up there for Ashley and we put her up there and she just won everything. And the thing about what I love most about you, Ashley, is how not only were you academic but you were sporty, you were in volleyball, but you were also our captain because that's, you have the leadership qualities and you're such a well-rounded in-life person. And this is why I know your book, why it's been on the bestseller list for Amazon is because what you've written here along with um, Dr. Adele LaFrance is this book that really speaks to parents where they're at, you know, not this kind of like, we're the doctors and we're going to tell you. So um, I'm pretty curious though, how you were able to bring together this book. I want to know a little bit of, of how you came together to collaborate with Dr. LaFrance to create this book. And so can you just give us a little insight about how this came to be? Yeah, well, I want to start by saying that I may have been a kid who won a lot of awards for academics, but I'll tell you what, that doesn't really help you at all when you become a parent. And to the contrary, I often felt like, well, there's no right answer. 
what, what am I supposed to do here? I had a lot of insecurity and I had a pretty hard time as a parent, um, probably in part because of all those expectations I put on myself. So I had got lots of help from my mentors and colleagues. And as my kids are getting older, part of my motivation to write this book was I wanted to put together the tips of what I had learned through my work as a child psychiatrist and my readings and science-based information and all the really practical things that I had learned as a parent to help other parents. And then as part of that, I wanted to create a workshop to help parents with day-to-day -day struggles with their kids. And lo and behold, Dr. LaFrance, had, she had already co-created a wonderful workshop for parents hmm. and someone put me on to her. And when we met, it was kind of clear that we needed to collaborate together. And so we decided to write this book. Oh, I'm so glad you're saying that because I remember this actually when you had your first, I think, and we talked about breastfeeding and the challenges mm -hmm. that you had leaving the hospital, this sense of, um, gosh, you know, I wasn't trained for this. Nobody told me about this. And so here we are all these years later, um, you being the voracious, curious person that you are, which is why personally, I believe that you've been so academically successful is because deep down, you're just curious for information. And um, I love that about you. So I know that we're going to focus on the tween years. So here's the thing. I've never even heard of that. What the heck? So can you clarify a little what that even means? And all the parents who have kids of this age are telling me to grow up, got that. But what's occurring developmentally, Ashley, neurologically, so that I can kind of get a grip and our listeners about this transitionary environment that kids are at in this stage. Sure. Well, the book is for kids age five, parents of kids age five to 12, but the tween years are sort of in that 10 to 13 age range where they're not quite teenagers yet, even could back it up to eight or nine, especially for girls, because we know as puberty is starting earlier and earlier. And so a lot of these changes in the brain development hormonally are starting much earlier than we may think. And so tweens, you know, they're not quite teenagers yet, but they're not little kids anymore. And those are the kids that we're really focused on, the school-age kids. Okay. So I did tell you I was going to go off script, so get ready. Here it's coming. I have really been curious why kids, girls, get their periods, menstruation earlier. So you kind of just said that they're growing up hormonally um, earlier than ever. So can you speak into that a little bit? What's going on? Are we developing faster? Is it, yeah, give, can I have some insight about what's going on um, in this day and age for this age? Yeah, we don't, we don't know exactly. Could be okay. some environmental issues with what's happening with our food supply. And there, there's not, I don't think, a very, very clear understanding of what's happening for girls. Okay. I mean, it just typically, is yeah, and some of it is if you have a higher body fat percentage, you're more likely to go through earlier puberty. So that could be part of it with changing eating habits and body composition. But it's not the whole story. Yeah, good call. And let's just say what I love about this conversation already is that we're at this le a leading edge place. So already we understand that as parents, it's important that we have these conversations, that we understand 
from someone like yourself and Dr. LaFrance what's going on because it isn't what was going on 20 years ago. It isn't what was going on 40 years ago, 100 years ago. So I hear that you have some Jedi mind tricks that, have, that help to foster cooperation in this age group. So the minute you wrote cooperation, I started laughing because me and my brother, who you know, we used to fought, like we fought pretty viciously and I don't know if my mom survived it. So how do you foster cooperation when there's a lot of resistance that really does happen at this age? So what's going on? Right. So, well, a lot of the sibling conflict is actually not about the siblings at all, but it can be a bid for the parents' resources, right? Because there's only one mom, two of you. Wow. And so, so a lot of what siblings, what's happening when they start fighting, we have a chapter in our book called, you love my sister more. And that's because, you know, that's something that kids Did you hear that, Devin? <laughs> he said that all the time. I still get it. Three brothers later that I'm called the favorite all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so typically when a kid says, mom, you love my sister more, the mom is going to say, no, I don't. I love you all the same right? That's like, all of us would say that. And that, you know, is normal. What happens, though, is sometimes when a child is was really saying something's not okay with me underneath that, if you just say, no, I don't I love you all the same, they're still not getting their cup filled up emotionally, they're still feeling like something's missing. So in our approach, the Jedi mind trick is to try to build a bridge to understand what your child may be feeling underneath what they're saying, and then to put it into words. Because if you can put into words your child's emotional state or needs, then it calms the brain. So instead of saying, no, you, no I don't, I love you all the same, instead, if, if mom or dad or the caregiver can say, I can understand why you feel that way because your brother and I have been spending a lot of time lately and because we both like a lot of sports and, you know, you're more artistic and because I just haven't made the time to hang out with you as much lately, mm. then you've changed the frame and now the child feels more understood. Mm. And then you can still add in the reassurance of, you know, but I love you with all my heart. love you as much. everybody. Um, you know, it's not, the same, but I do love you so much. And maybe we can go to a movie together later on or something like that. So you're, you're not ending with the putting it in words, which is called validation, but you're starting there. Oh, I like so that's, that. That's an example of dealing with sibling conflict. I feel like we're seven again, and we are like on the precipice right here. <laughs> um, because I just got that the first one is this almost like a reassuring, you know, a very innocent, reassuring comment, but in some ways it cuts the expression, you know, like someone's expressing something and as parents, things are moving pretty fast, you know, like oftentimes we don't, my experience is I don't always detect it till later. I sort of reflect later and go, huh, was that really what she was trying to say? So can we do the Jedi mind trick after the fact? Like, let's say we say the no, I love you all the same. Do you have some um, tactics that could work for how to have the conversation you just described, but in the best possible receptive way? Like where, where does, how could that happen? 
for sure. So we have a chapter in the book called The Do-Over, which oh, okay. is I think, my favorite chapter because, <laughs> I mean, most of the time we're not going to hit the mark the first time. It's mm. completely normal and natural that as parents, we are out of sync with our kids actually like most of the time. You don't need to be in sync all the time. That wouldn't even be possible or helpful. So if you do say something that you later regret, you can always go back. It is really never too late to mm -hmm. say what you would have said the first time around. And that's actually what strengthens relationship. So you can easily come back later and say, hey, you know what, when you and your brother were fighting before, I recognized that I sort of said, oh, it's all okay. And I didn't really hear you fully. And actually what I want you to know is that I get why you might think that I love your brother more or your sister more. And then you can proceed with the same becauses because mm -hmm. we spend more time together because we both like sports. And the, the key there is instead of saying, I can understand why you might feel that way, but I love you all the same right away, right? That natural instinct to say, but, is instead we shift it to because. I can understand why you feel that way because I spend more time with your brother, because we both like sports. So you're adding the reasons, you're showing your child that you really get it from their point of view. Yeah, got it, stepping into their world. Um, I'm thinking that this is very good information for much more than just parenting. Like for me, this is, when you work with team members, when you work with people that you might be managing or leading, this sense of being able to go back at any time, reflect upon a situation and actually listen to somebody. Is that right, Ashley? Are these kind of ideas transferable? Absolutely. So this helps when you're dealing with your co-parent. We have a chapter in the book. It's called What to Say to Kids When Nothing Seems to Work, but it could also be called what to say to your co-parent, yeah. right? What to say to your other half, because the same thing happens where if, you're, mm -hmm. if your partner or co-parent says, like, you're too soft, you always let them get away with everything, the first reaction is to defend yourself, right? And say, no, I'm not, mm -hmm. you just don't understand. But what would happen if instead we could listen, try to build a bridge to understand their perspective and put their perspective in words? Beautiful. I can imagine that it looks like I'm too soft because I let him have his toast yeah. with the crust cut off and mm. I made his whole lunch for him, even though he said he was going to do it himself. And I get that from your point of view, you really worry he's never going to be able to be independent with these things. Wow. So if we can Beautiful. validate and put into words our co-parents point of view, that calms the nervous system. And for sure, you can do that with your teammate, your colleagues. Absolutely. That was such a good example though, about the Nat and Sarah show. Perhaps Nat will really love that. <laughs> and I get it. It's like bring out the inner counselor, um, you know, truly, and, and actually utilize that in this. I'm glad you brought up the co-parenting because for me, that's like, that's where this real growth and real tension arises. It's like, how to know what your values are, see what really ticks you off in your partner. Holy cow. Like, and I find that's really interesting. Like you said, that you can go back, reflect and, and hear. Cause, cause when 
like I'm getting about this nervous system, like calming the nervous system is really about listening to people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, really being able to hear what they're really saying, not through my own interpretation. Um, okay. So I've got so many questions. So thank you for letting me just blast them. Um, reassuring a child feels really natural, you know, especially when they're sad or they're worried or anxious, you know, Jordy's just started her version of school. Um, so talk to me a little bit about reassurance and then even celebrating kids. Are they the same? Is this different? Like is one better than another? Talk to me a bit about this. Yeah. I mean, they're kind of different situations because usually reassurance comes out when we feel a child is anxious about something um, or embarrassed and celebrating is more when the child's feeling happy or joyous. So, and reassurance, again, there's nothing wrong with reassurance. We just want to make sure it's not the only strategy we do because we want to help kids develop some comfort and ability to manage their own feelings. And if we're quick to jump in all the time and say, it's okay, it's okay, there's nothing to worry about, we're actually not letting them have the space they need to figure out how to handle the stress. So hmm. it's to we would suggest the same kind of approach, let's say, your kid says, well, I can't decide which sweater to wear to school tomorrow. And they're really fussed about it. So a natural thing might be to say, it's okay. It doesn't matter whichever sweater you wear or just kind of solve the problem for them. And in our chapter, I can't decide. We recommend again, that same approach of like, well, no wonder it's hard to choose because you love both these sweaters and you mm. don't want to feel sad if you chose the one and you're disappointed with it later. So of course it's hard to choose between these two awesome sweaters. And then you're sort of handing it back to them. You're there, you're supportive, and they, it helps soothe the brain and then they can make a better decision. And it doesn't mean you won't set a limit. I mean, you're not gonna spend 20 minutes doing the sweater decision. <laughs> if they, this can increase their, their flexibility to make the decision. And if it doesn't, you can still then come in and say, okay, you've got like two minutes to choose between the two of them and I'll meet you downstairs. Let's have breakfast. So you can still move into getting practical yeah. as a parent you always do. It's just that first bit of giving them some space to sit with the stress. So that's around reassurance is to try to give it back to them a bit. And then joy. So I don't know about okay, you. Wait, but I got to interrupt. Okay. I'm, being, I'm being that person because you're triggering a really good question for me. Reassurance, because I go, oh, you know, I hope other people, listeners are doing this. Where do I do that? You know, because I love this idea of getting, getting on their side and being like, where are they at? Like, let me just get into their world. So when it has to do, I'm calling it Jordy's OCD tendencies, which potentially were passed down. Potentially. <laughs> like an example, food like the specificness around, so today the egg has bits around the edge that are like crusty, right? And she's like so aware of like these differences. My approach is like, okay, I'm here to guide her in this way that she's looking at the world. So no, my question is how can I be with her as she starts to become very, specific around things like she's very textural and like I could just see that it could go pretty severe 
Like she could go intensely there or maybe get looser around it. Is this the right way to approach this or? Yeah. You get what I'm getting? I mean, I'm not that clear. Yeah, yeah. I think I get it. I mean, so many kids are just trying on different things. They go through different things. For the most part, all these things turn out okay. You know what I mean? That's like the first step as a parent is just for the most part, this is all going to be fine. But it is hard when you're seeing a new behavior and you're concerned that it could turn into something serious. So of course you want to have an approach or feel confident. And with our approach with something like that, you recognize that your child's maybe having a sensory issue, doesn't like it, and you can put that into words. For a younger child, it's going to be less words, um, but it might be something like, well, yeah, of course it's hard. It's kind of tricky to eat that egg because you don't really like the crusty bits on the on the outside and maybe you don't think they're going to taste very good or feel very good in your mouth so I get why it'd be hard to to eat that okay and then you're still going to as a parent if this is what you choose to do maybe ask them to take to try one bite or let's both take a bite together so you're expanding their window of what they can try and tolerate so okay, so that that was really good. So I get so I get it. So it's like really relating to what that would be like for her because she is having that experience. And like my approach was sort of around let's explore like the trying. Sometimes they will, sometimes they won't, but exploring that they're still okay when they do that. I don't want to minimize her experience, but like if it in the beginning, if it would rain on her, <laughs> she would freak out. And I would be like trying to ask her, so how does it feel when it rains on you? Like, because I felt that it was sort of like the brain was having a freak out. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I guess it's that second little part of how to relate and have her try or have a new experience without her brain, I guess, or her neurology freaking out. So is is there a way to do that? Is there a way to, again, it's not reassure, but is like, what's the kind of, what are we promoting really as parents there? We're, we're really promoting connection that okay. we're helping the child to feel not alone in their distress. So we're not rushing in to try to solve the problem, take it all away. Of course we want to as parents, right? It's totally natural, but we actually can't make someone else feel better by telling them to feel better, we can make them feel better by being in that experience with them and showing them they're not alone and showing them we get it. Boom. That was like a Brene Brown moment. Okay. That was good. I got yeah, it. She actually does have a quote that's very similar to that. That was good though. That's yeah. amazing. Okay. I'm sorry. Cause I do love the celebrating and the joy part. And so thank you for that. So hit me with celebrating oh, our kids right. and joy. Yeah, so I was going to say, you know, in our cultures, I think, I don't know about you, but I feel like growing up often you're taught to be humble and not to overdo it and showing how happy you are when something good is happening. Mm -hmm. And so we're sometimes uncomfortable with our kids when they're really excited about something, especially if they're excited about something we don't totally understand. Like if your child says, I love this new um, app I got on my on my tablet and I like they're super excited about it we may just not naturally resonate with that the thing is about joy is it, it wants to be joined when you're really excited you want other people to be excited with you 
And if you go to someone and you tell them about this great accomplishment you have or thing you love, and they're like really flat, just totally takes out of your balloon, right? Deflate, mm. deflating. So for joy, we want to encourage it by also getting like really happy, excited with our kids and the same framework of, wow, no wonder you're excited because you work so hard for this and because it's a super fun thing you've got and you love playing that game with your friends. So again, we're putting into words the child's experience so they feel like we're together with them in it and then it magnifies the joy and lets them feel comfortable in that experience. That's cool. I love it because there's a definite theme. Like what I love is that every time there's sort of this connection, move toward them, mm-hmm. be with them, you know, get into their world. And yet sometimes, especially as the tween approaches teen, the shutting out mm-hmm. ha- I've heard. Okay. So, and honestly, like I'm kind of scared about it because there's this whole kind of, societal conversation with parents around like, you know, I have a daughter and it's like, Oh, she's going to turn on you when she's a sage. And so my approach, I like to be different. I'm like, I'm going to create something different. So Ashley, what's going on with the shutout? Is there ways to create something else? And should I even be wanting to create something different? Yeah. I mean, part of it is totally developmentally normal. Obviously that older kids and tweens and teens, they want, some space for themselves. So we're not really talking so much about just that, the normal space, but more that when a child is really upset and they say, you know, I'm not talking to you, I don't wanna talk to you, that kind of thing. uh, They may need a few minutes of space, but this idea that kids need to go and be by themselves to calm down doesn't necessarily hold up, especially for younger kids, where they don't necessarily yet know how to calm down. And so it doesn't mean you need to be right there in the room with them, but maybe close by, letting them know you're available. And often the the reasons they shut down is because they are worried that you as the caregiver can't handle their distress. Or they they don't want to upset you. They don't want to make things worse. Or they feel like when they've tried to talk about it before, it hasn't gone very well because the parent has gotten stressed out and then maybe angry or so being able to put that into words, whatever the case may be, you sort of have to ask yourself, well, if I were in my kid's shoes, why might I shut myself out? Right. And so it may be that you're saying something to your child, like, well, I, I think I could probably understand why you wouldn't want to talk to me because in the past I've gotten really upset too. And then it's just spiraled. And because you don't want to feel even worse. And so if you can put that into words and your child may not come out of the room right away, may not, but it'll soften things. And over time, they'll realize that it's, it's easier to be able to talk about things. And sometimes they can't talk because they're just overwhelmed and they don't want to be asked a lot of questions, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes as parents were like, what's wrong and what happened? And because we want to help so badly but for a kid, it may be too much. So if you realize that issue might be like, I get that it would be hard to talk to me because I always ask you lots and lots of questions. I really just, I'm happy to be with you. We can play some cards, go for a walk, 
I get that it would just, you just don't even know what to call this right now. It's just super overwhelmed and that's, that's okay. Wow. So why is that more beneficial than them having the moment? Let's say like, why would going for the walk benefit them more than staying in the room alone? Because we, so we, we have this thing called co-regulation, right? When you're, for, we help each other as humans to calm down when we're in the presence of another calm other. Mm-hmm. And that could be parent-child, could be partners. So the act of just being with someone, doing something gentle, physical, where there's not a lot of emotional demands can be really soothing. Okay, that's really good. I think that I, yeah, this is very helpful for me because I am, I would be the pepper with questions person. So that was very helpful. Oh, I've got lots, I've got some more questions about the shutting out thing. So what from a developmental point of view is going on for, let's say, I, I, I don't know so much, but it feels like the 10 to 14. So I know we're a little bit out of the range, but What's, what's this developmental period about? Being a teenager is, I mean, biologically about, can I survive as an independent adult? So they need to take more and more um, time where they're having autonomy, where they can make their own decisions, where they can have more times where they are a little bit by themselves. And that's just, part of their job is to become separate from us. So we often think of attachment as, oh, just being close. But the real definition of attachment is both having closeness and the ability to support our children in their exploration, in their own confidence, and their autonomy. So both halves of that are equally important. And as they get to 10 to 14, you know, it's different from when they're little kids and they really do need us all the time and so like if they're off you know obviously there's a whole new social framework as they go off to school and there's different you know depending on what age if they're feel if if your child feels lonely so if they're trying to figure out can i make it in the world then they feel alone and then i i think then this the shutout can happen more then they're alone in their room Mm. What is this, how can a parent be with the loneliness? Because I think there's a sense of, you're not alone, you've got us. And the the kid's like, "Uh, not you, (laughs) you're not who I need, you know, or, you know, a dot, you know, I I don't know if I've said this, but this is what's coming up, this idea of like, when you feel ugly and then your mom's like, but you're beautiful. And you're like, mom. Like, I don't want to hear it from you. So how do you like foster? They want it all from their friends and their like peer group. And yet you're there as the parent being all reassuring. And that's not what they really want. Yeah, no, I I think you've got it, Sarah. I think that's exactly the situation is you as a parent can certainly be with them. Just as you said, just be with them in their loneliness, not trying to make it go away allow them if they're talking to you to talk about what their feelings are and validate that right I can understand why you'd feel lonely because you wanted to have lunch with your friends and they were all together and you were left out and you just so want to be with them and you have such a good time with them and then the second part of that is the getting practical so then you can of course 
reassure them like you want to. And you can also help them with problem solving. Or you can ask them, do you, would you like me to help you think of something to do to feel more included with your friends or to help you figure out other people you can hang out with? Or do you want me to just listen? Mm. And sometimes kids will just want you to listen. And the fact that you've put their feelings into words is enough and they feel calm and they can get back out there. And sometimes they really do need your help, especially those younger kids to figure out the social world with their friends. So yeah, we do a lot of, a lot of that kind of coaching parents to coach their kids on social stuff. So the last question, and I've got 200 more. So I hope you'd be up for coming again as your book grows, grows more and more. And I'm sure I just know you'll bring out a second one. You just won't be able to help yourself. Um, so my last thing is about parents. How soothe us all around our own control and our own feeling of needing to um, affect this in some way. So give us a little soothing message, Ashley, that lets us know that all will be well in the world. But also, you know, almost can we um, busy ourselves doing something else instead of trying to get into their business like we want to be in their world and understand them but not so much about controlling them so what would you say to that yeah I I mean the first thing is just acknowledging that anyone listening to this anyone who's put this time in to try to figure out something more about being with their kids already you're there right you're already thinking about it you're giving your best to your kids so that's that's the first thing and Kids do not need us to be there attuned to them all the time. That's not even helpful. Having some mismatches and going back and repairing it, that actually does create the strongest relationship. Hmm. And it's also never too late. So it doesn't matter if your child's 2, 22, or 52, it's never too late to relate to them in a different way that can improve things. So those are some of the things that I really take to heart as a parent and that have helped me a lot. And uh, I just really am grateful to you for giving me the opportunity to talk about all of this. Yeah, I love that. I really love It's Never Too Late because I think then we can always rise to the occasion. And I really get that I was very engaged in this parenting conversation and I was getting It's Never Too Late in any kind of relationship, whether it's with Nat, that, I, that we can talk about this, even events that have happened six months ago a year ago and business like people that I'm in business with, if, if ever it feels off, um, it's never too late to kind of, to, to almost want to be in their world and to understand where they're coming from. So I've, yeah, thank you so much. It's awesome. Well, thank you.